Well, tonight we are going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. And on this one here, uh, we're going to see a little bit more about the Sabbath rest. Uh, earlier we saw that the Sabbath rest is a prophetic picture of our heavenly home and that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, uh, what we want to start out with here is Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. And it says this, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, once more here we're seeing the Sabbath is pointed to a shadow of something more, more than just this seventh day rest, more than just the day that God created. It's really pointing to our heavenly home here as well. Now, this verse I have heard many, many times be used against those who keep the festivals and that type of thing as if this is a negative thing. But the way I see this and in context with the rest of the scripture is this. Don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival. Don't let people judge you because we do Passover and celebrate Christ in that. Why? Because these are a shadow of things to come. These are a shadow of Christ. Therefore, don't be judged when you do this since it's a good thing because the substance is Christ. And it's just interesting that the church today does judge those who keep these festivals with Christ in uh, the forefront of their mind, and, and that's not what we're supposed to do. But anyway, it, it's talking here about the Sabbaths as well, that even the Sabbath, the substance of it, is Christ. Why? Well, because, well, A, he was the creator of the world, and B, because it's pointing to the rest that he came to prepare for us. So here in Hebrews 4, 6 is where we're going to begin tonight. It says, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Now, earlier there in verse 5, we saw that this was talking about the rest. God said some didn't enter his rest. And clearly, we talked about last week that that rest was pointing to the Sabbath. And so once more, we're seeing a contrast between those who are disobedient, who are not going to enter God's rest, not going to enter heaven, didn't enter the promised land, and those who are obedient, that will enter God's rest, his eternal home. And so obedience matters today, even though we don't hear this highlighted from the pulpit, this verse is, is highlighting it. Hebrews is highlighting it. And what's interesting to me is we don't see obedience being highlighted in the churches today, but what do we see happening in the churches? Compromise. There's uh, false doctrines. There's all kinds of things because we don't highlight the importance of obedience because of salvation. But if you look in the past, we've got people like Leonard Ravenhill, David Wilkerson, Charles Spurgeon. Almost every one of these revivalists of the past highlighted obedience and repentance, something that the church 
has left in the dust. And so uh, here in Hebrews, it's saying that some must enter. Those to whom it was first preached did not enter. Why? Because they didn't obey. Now, this is New Testament, and he's comparing that to us. So it's basically saying this, guys, if we're not obedient, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven either. And I know everybody's going to say, whoa, that's works righteous, that's works righteous. No, it isn't. He's saying, just this faith without works is dead. If you're not obeying, I don't think you have faith. If you're, it, it, I'm not saying you don't screw up from time to time, but I'm saying if you live in a state of disobedience to God and willful disobedience to His Word, then you're just like those people wandering in the wilderness who did not enter the rest. Why? Because of their disobedience. That's what this is saying here. Now, again, this is uh, completely in uh, line with the rest of Scripture. You can go to Romans 6.16. It says this, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the one slave, you are, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you're a slave to the one whom you obey. Whether if you're a slave to sin, you're willfully sinning, and, and woe is me, I can't stop doing this. What does that say? Well, then you are a slave to death. You are worshiping the one whom you obey. And it's either God or the devil. Okay, But if you're a slave to obedience, that means that your mind is a slave to wanting to do good. Just like Paul said, I want to do that which is good. But I can't carry it out. So he says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I, what I don't want to do, I keep on doing. But he was a slave to righteousness. Even though he says, in my mind, I'm a slave to the law of sin at work in my members, in his body, in his spirit, in his mind, he is a slave to obedience, a slave to righteousness. And so... Obedience leads to being saved. There's no question about it. But it's not because of our will or our works. It's because of the Spirit and His power in us. Um, people don't want to hear that we reap what we sow. But that's a very biblical concept. And sometime we'll go through that, not tonight, but just where we see so often that there are those who get what they sow. Haman is one example. You know, Haman in the book of Esther builds these gallows to kill Mordecai. And what ends up happening? He gets hung on that very gallow. And that's kind of what it means that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of thing. He said, what you reap, you're going to sow. So, as I said, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, uh, it says this, And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Uh, it's showing the same thing as in Romans here, where he's contrasting obedience to disobedience. Okay, that there there is a, a a contrast, not just in Hebrews, not just in Romans, but here in Corinthians, Deuteronomy thirteen or thirty, verse nineteen. It says, 
I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. So again, not a new concept. This is an Old Testament concept too. God says, I set before you blessings, curses, death, and life. Choose. Choose this day whom you will follow. And you guys all have a choice to either follow God or follow this world. Okay, you know, Jesus said that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And today, we kind of have a tendency to think, well, he didn't really literally mean that. Yes, he did. He really did. If your eye would cause you to go to hell, would it not be better to pluck out your eye than go to hell? If your arm causes you to sin, wouldn't it be better to cut it off? Now again, the problem is this. The problem isn't the eye and the problem isn't the arm. The problem is the heart that controls the eye, that controls the hand. If somebody's caught in pornography today and they say, I just can't stop, I can't stop. If they plucked out their eye, that doesn't solve the problem, does it? But would it be better that you could pluck out whatever it is that's causing that sin and to go to hell? Yes, it would be better. In pornography today, you know, I, I, I know some people who are caught in this, but yet they're also caught in the, the idea that, hey, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm not going to ever be able to fall, therefore I'm still okay. That's not what Hebrews is saying here. He's saying, be careful that you don't live in disobedience because that kept them from entering their rest and that can keep you from entering yours as well. And so I would hope that the fear of God would overcome your love for that sin, whatever it might be, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that the fear of God would cause you to say, I am going to do whatever it takes to get rid of this, this pornography. If I have to get rid of the computer in my home, it's gone. If I have to um, confess my sin and, and have accountability partners and be humbled because people know my sin, then I'm going to confess those things. Because it would be better that you be embarrassed here on this life than to spend an eternity in hell because you keep serving uh, this, the, the one whom you obey, basically serving the devil in pornography or whatever sin there may be. So, like I said, this isn't just Hebrews. This is a concept throughout. Um, let's go to Hebrews 4, verse 7. It says, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have, not afterward have spoken of another day. Again, today is emphasized here over and over because it's so vital. He's pleading with those hearers of Hebrews right there saying, today, you guys, not just back in David's time, but you guys. When he says here, it was a, after such a long time, it was 400 years from the time that the law was given to David. And so in verse 8 there, he's saying, 
that he had confirmed the promised land wasn't the final fulfillment of the promise. If Joshua had given them rest, then he wouldn't have spoken of another day because they got to go into the promised land. So the story is over. But he's saying, no, the story isn't over because that promised land was a picture of eternal life and it's not over. We have not reached our promised land yet today. And so Psalm 78.1 says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I just wish that the, the people of the church today would do this very thing. They would give ear to God's law. Incline their ears to the words of his mouth. But rather than doing that, it seems like we're offended by God's law. We're offended by those who want to obey God. Verse 9 in Hebrews chapter 4 says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. That's talking about heaven. It's still to come. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So yeah, when you die, you're going to enter your rest. And your works will cease just as God did at creation. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So right there in verse 11, he's saying, be diligent to enter that rest. This is a, this is a race. We, we have to strive after this. Okay, it's not going to be, oh, I'm a Christian because I said a prayer. I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home, so I'm going to enter the rest. No, he's saying you have to be diligent. This is a race that has been marked out for us, and we need to run with purpose to cross that finish line. If you're going to run a race just kind of walking, oh, I'm going to go do my internet thing, and I'm going to go do my work thing, and I'm going to go do my entertainment thing, that's not being diligent. That's not running a race with purpose. That's meandering and hoping someday you're going to get across the, the, the finish line. Because he says, lest, unless you fall. If you're not diligent, if you're not purposeful about your life, there's a warning here that you could fall and be like those in the wilderness who died because of disobedience. And so again, God ceased by resting on the Sabbath just like we are to do. Why? Because this is prophetic of the kingdom of God. He's telling you. And I, I personally think this is also just a, a reminder of the commandment. Anybody reading this would have obviously had that fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember your rest. Remember that you're supposed to be you know, studying and learning of me and, and, and having your heart meditating upon me so that you have you're running your life with purpose. You know, <coughs> I have here a guy named Arthur Pink. I don't agree with all of what uh, his theology was, but um, in his exposition of Hebrews, this is what he says. As was the case with the contents of verse 9 and 10, so we are assured there is a double reference to the words of verse 11 that we've just gone through here. A general and a specific. A general refers to the future and a perfect rest of the Christian in heaven, 
the specific being to that which is the emblem and type of it, namely, the weekly Sabbath. So again, he's talking about this very verse we're talking about in Hebrews. He goes on. This, we believe, is why the Holy Spirit here says, let us give diligence, therefore, to enter into that rest, rather than into his rest, as in verse 1. That rest designedly includes both the eternal rest of God, basically heaven, and the Sabbath rest, something we're supposed to do every week, spoken of there in verse 10. He continues, This we are to give diligence to enter, not only because the Sabbath desecration of worldlings is apt to discourage us, but also because there are professing Christians who loudly insist that there is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath. Do you hear that? He's saying that the church should be diligent in keeping the Sabbath because otherwise it will discourage us. We will lose heart. And then he goes on to say that many professing Christians are even loudly saying, we don't, we don't need to keep the Sabbath. We don't need to keep one of those Ten Commandments. That's a spirit of lawlessness. He goes on and says, Beware lest we fail to heed this word of God and fall through the same example of unbelief as Israel in the wilderness who failed to listen to God. Pink is saying the exact same thing. Don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Those Israelites in the wilderness who did not take that rest because they did not obey, they didn't obey, therefore they didn't take the rest, therefore they didn't enter the rest. And so, some wise words there. We go on here on Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. I want to show you the Sabbath. Did you know that the Sabbath was the first test of God? God tests us. There's no question about it. Exodus 16.4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So the very first test God gave after the Exodus was, he says, here's the Shabbat, here's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to collect wood on the Sabbath, and yet this guy comes out and he does it anyway. By the way, he's stoned too. That's how serious it was. This says a lot about us. Do we trust and have faith enough in God and his commands that, you know, that we will be blessed by obeying them or that he will provide if we keep a Sabbath, maybe we think, well, if I, don't, if I do that, I'm, I'm going to go broke or my, my crops aren't going to get in. You know, do you trust that God will provide when you obey him? Okay, the devil is the one that keeps saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a Sabbath. We're free in Christ. Go ahead and exercise that cheap grace. That is not what he's saying here. Guys, I want you to understand something. When was Israel technically saved? When did God choose them and save them? It's just what we just celebrated, Passover. When was the law given? After he chose them and after he gave them grace and saved them with the blood of the Lamb. And then he says, okay, now that I have saved you, now that you've even gone through the Red Sea, you've been baptized, you're mine, 
Now, here are the Ten Commandments. Why? I'm going to test you. I'm going to see, do you really love me? After all I've done for you, do you really love me? That's the same pattern we see in the New Testament. John says, if you love me, Jesus says this in John, if you love me, you will do what I say. He says, I died on the cross for you. Now, here are the commandments of God that I gave a long time ago, and I'm giving you my Holy Spirit to empower you to obey, to see them. And I've put, taken that law, the, those commandments, I've put, taken Mount Sinai, and I've taken them off of stone, and I put them into your hearts and into your minds so that you should have a desire, because of what I've done, to obey them. So here's the test. Do you really love me or do you not? That's what Exodus 16 is saying. This is a test, and we're living in one right now. If you love God, you will not continue to live like hell and hopefully gain heaven. It doesn't work that way. Let's go back to Hebrews verse 11. It says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. We kind of talked about this, but again, I think this is keeping the Sabbath as part of it. That's just one part of us entering the Sabbath rest of the kingdom of God, spoken of here in Hebrews 4. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor, who are heavily, heavily burdened. Come to me, and he says what? I will give you rest. Okay, we're to run to Jesus, and he will give us this rest. How do we run to him? By obeying his commands. And when we do that, there's going to be rest. This is what he was talking about with, in Zechariah, where it says that in the last days, ten men are going to grab hold of the seat seat of a Jew. Well, what's the seat seat rep represent? The commands. He says, you Gentiles are going to come running, and you're going to grab onto the commands of God. And say, take us with you. We've heard God is with you. And I'm seeing that happen. More and more people are understanding that if we want to chase after God's rest, enter his rest, we obey his commands, and that does bring rest and blessings in our lives. Verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He just finished saying, don't forget to keep the Sabbath, and now he shows why. Because you need time in the Word of God. I don't think it's an accident that he's connecting, okay, don't forget, you know, strive to enter that rest. How do you do it? The Word of God. It's living. It's active. Go there. Seek it. Spend time in the Word every day because there is life in keeping His commandments. There's life in His Word, and that's how you see His Word and His commandments, by the way, are the same thing. Jesus, when tempted, how did He overcome the temptations? By the Word of God. Let me tell you something. If you don't know the Word, if you're not committing it to memory, when you're tempted, how are you going to bring it up? We need to know that word. And so let's look at that a little bit more here. Psalm 119, verse 9. It says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. 
your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. There in verse 12 of Hebrews, it said that his word, it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And here we see the psalmist saying, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What keeps us on the straight and narrow? His word. And that's why it's so important. You know, years ago, schools, churches, we had memory verses. That's gone by the wayside because it's too difficult. It's too hard. Most people can quote everything from The Office or some other TV show. But how much of the word do we know? Jesus said, where your heart is, that's where your God is going to be. Do we, have we allowed entertainment to be more of a God than, than his word? Do we know more about movies and television programs and memes than we know about his word? Ecclesiastes 8.4 says, where the word of a king is, there is power, keeping in mind that it is God that is our king here. And that's what this is kind of pointing to. That's the power. Uh, Daniel Joseph talked about beets. He juices. And he said, nobody in their right mind is going to eat a beet. They're awful. If I just gave you a beet and said, here, eat this, you're going to take a bite and you're going to go, no, thank you. But when I tell you the health benefits of a beet and how it's unequaled to many other vegetables, that it provides all of this value to you, it causes you to say, you know, okay, maybe I will, uh, you know, I'll juice it. I'll put the beet in there. I'll eat it because it's good for me. I know I need it. But until you know the value of it, you don't understand the importance of it, you're not going to eat it. And this is what the writer does with the Word of God. He's trying to show you the value of the Word of God. That This is what's going to keep you from falling away. It's what's going to keep you from going astray. It's what's going to keep you in times of trouble and give you encouragement in times of coronavirus. If you don't know it, if you can't meditate upon it, if you can't just dive into it, you don't experience the value of it. You have to eat it. You have to partake of it. And But before that, if you're going to partake of it, you truly have to believe there's value in it. And I don't know. I think that we in word can say, yes, there's value in the word of God. But in practice, oftentimes I don't think we truly believe that there is a value in the word of God compared to none other. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, Hebrews says the word you know, knows the thoughts of the heart, which is good since the heart is deceitful. I know myself there are many times when I think that I am doing the right thing. I can justify it or whatever the case might be, but bottom line, I'm wrong. And if I go to the word, I can see it. Let me give you one example, this coronavirus. I've had to, in my heart, you know, people are saying, you can't meet together. We, we, we're not able to come together and have this Bible study. And there's in my flesh a little rebellious spirit that says, yeah, why not? I think we should do that. Nobody can tell me that we can't meet together the word of God. 
But I look at the Word of God, and the Word of God says, submit to the governing authorities in Romans 13. And I say, well, then I guess maybe my heart, maybe, maybe I'm acting more prideful. Now, I'm not saying there can't be a, a, a time when the government will cross the line and forbid completely all of, you know, that we can't worship, we can't have the Word of God, we can't fellowship at all, then yeah, it's time to go against that because then they're going against the Word of God. But they're not right now. But the Word is what basically discerns what's in my heart. And it gives me a light to where I should go. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. Okay, remember, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. When these people come before the Lord, and they say, Lord, Lord, we, we, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons. And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, you sinner, you who live in sin, you who are disobedient. Because there's a way that seems right to a man. These people thought, well, I'm doing right. I'm serving God. I'm going to church. I'm, I'm casting out demons. But in the end, it was a way of death. Why? Because they were doing it their way. Not God's way. They were, they were workers of iniquity. They weren't doing it the way the word of God said. It's kind of like in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. Who were they worshiping with the golden calf? Were they worshiping a pagan god? No. Go read it. It says, this is your God. This is the, this is, it says literally, this is Yahweh that led you out of Egypt. So they made this golden calf, called it Yahweh, the God of creation, and said, here you go. Now you can worship this idol. Well, God had said, you're not going to worship idols. They said, no, well, we want to worship God, but we want to worship him the way we want to worship him. We want to worship him like we're used to, the way of the culture, the way of the world, how they, they you know, have these idols, something to look at. And God saw that as an abomination. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. So we can trust in our own heart what you want, what you desire, but whoever walks wisely by going by God's word, they are the ones that will be delivered. You see, if you think that the Lord is speaking to you, perhaps you better measure it against God's word. Time and time again, I hear, well, you know, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. And it's like, no, he didn't, because that goes against God's word. That's your heart. The heart is deceitful, it's wicked, it's beyond cure. Don't listen to your heart, listen to the word of God. And I think that we all need to take a step back, even what we do in the church, and ask ourselves, why do we do it? Is this something of God, or is this something of my heart, my culture, my upbringing, my, my parents, my denomination, or is this my God? Jeremiah 14, 13 says, And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Let me give you some background here. Jeremiah is in a time the Babylonians have come. They have taken uh, a lot of the people captive. And we see, behold, the prophets are saying to the people, you're not going to see the sword. You're not going to have famine. You're going to have peace. And you know what? The people loved that message. 
You see, these were prophets of God, but they were false prophets. They were people who were in the church, and by the way, we've got that today. People who go to church, but they're not saying what God's word says. They just make it sound godly. Okay, God had earlier told these people that there would be destruction and captivity, and the prophets here are contradicting what God had said earlier. But the people are believing it, and probably the prophets too, because they wanted to believe it. That's what they wanted to hear. They forgot that God's word had said, if you don't keep my commands, I'm going to tear you away from this land. I will remove you from it. They weren't obeying God's commands, so he was fulfilling his promise. It goes on in verse 14. The Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. They were doing it in God's name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Again, these were true prophets, just lying, going against God's word. Just like there are true pastors today who I truly believe do love God, but have been deceived by their heart, by the culture, by a denomination, by all kinds of things, and they are saying what is not right biblically. We have to get off the internet, and we have to search, study, seek God's word so that we know what it says, and God will bless that. But most people don't even know. They don't have the spiritual discernment to even know when something isn't right doctrinally or spiritually or theologically today. Let me show you here what Charles Spurgeon said about the power of God's word. He said, discernment is not simply telling the difference between what is right and wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. That's powerful. This is what I've been harping at with you, my family, about church and how it's become so man-centered. It sounds good. Oh, you know, God will bless you if you do that. It sounds good, but it's not right. It's taking our eyes off of Jesus. It's putting it on us. What do we get? We're getting the glory, not God. And, and we could go through many different examples. Our songs, our worship songs, those that you could sing to your boyfriend. Sounds good if your mind is in the right place, but if it's not, it's not going to lead you to God. It might lead you to your boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever the case might be. But the point is, is, this is huge. What Discernment today, I think that's one of the biggest problems in the church, is it's not between right and wrong, it's between right and almost right. Let me show you what Acts verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 11 says. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scripture daily to find out whether these things were so. These are the Bereans he's talking about. You see, when Paul went there, he, he gave them the scriptures, and then they went and searched the scriptures to see if Paul was a false prophet or not. That's what we need to be doing. You hear a sermon, you better go in and say, is this of God, or is this just something that sounds nice to my flesh? It's what I want to hear. Because I'll tell you something, guys. We don't hear about God's wrath very much today. And I think that we're in it. I don't know if this coronavirus, if this is the beginning of his wrath or not. I don't know. I can tell you this, that 
you know, we look at the third seal of Revelation, and what is it? It's, it's an economic collapse. We could be on the brink of the third seal of Revelation. I don't know. We'll have to watch and see. But we need to prepare ourselves. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. Just because it's coming from your church, just because it's coming from a pastor, or just because it's even coming from me, don't believe it unless you consider it against the Word of God to see if it's what it says. Verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What is the Word? You know, for, for any believer, any Christian... At this time, when this was written, when he's saying the Word of God, what was he thinking about? Because when you read this, I'll bet you're thinking about, oh, my Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. When he's writing this, the, 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 the listeners, the hearers, when they said the Word of God, you know what they had? The Old Testament. Technically, he is talking about the Old Testament here, that it is living it is powerful, it is sharper than a double-edged sword, it pierces be between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, it's a discerner of thoughts, it's in, in the intents of the heart. It is the Old Testament. I would say most Christians today don't think of the Old Testament when they look at this verse fully. What that is is the Law and the Prophets. Today, we call it the Old Testament. The Jews call it the Tanakh. What is the Tanakh? Well, I'll kind of show you that in just a second, but all the Tanakh is, is the Old Testament, divided up into three parts. And so what I want you to, what you're going to see here is that the notion that the law, people think the law is more this Old Testament thing than the Bible, but let me say, don't let the culture define what law is. I want the Bible to define what law is. People say Jesus got rid of the law. I respond, what, he got rid of the scriptures? They go, no, he just got rid of the law. You see, it's all about perspective because right here in Hebrews 4.12, he's talking about these scriptures, the word of God being the law and the prophets. Okay, it's the same exact thing. Let me show you here, Luke 24.44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in what? The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He, what he just said is this. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are in the Tanakh. The Tanakh is, as I said, three categories of the Old Testament. Okay, the Torah, which are the first five books of Moses. Then you have the Nevim, which are the prophets. And then you have the Ketuvim, which are those other minor prophet things, or, or the, not just the minor ones, but uh, kind of that third category of the prophets there, major and minor prophets. So the, the Nevim is more the Psalms. I think I said that prophets. I think I said that wrong before. But 
what you see then is the, the Torah, like the Psalms, the Proverbs, and then you have the minor and major prophets, Ketuvim. So the reason it's called Tanakh is because T stands for Torah, the N stands for the Nevi'im, and the K stands for Ketuvim, Tanakh. And so this is exactly what we're reading here when Jesus says this. He's saying, this is what the Tanakh says of me. And then it says, he opened their understanding that he might comprehend the what? The scriptures. Jesus himself called the scriptures the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And so when people say Jesus got rid of the law, and I say, oh, he got rid of the scriptures? This is what I mean. Jesus himself said, the scriptures are the law, the prophets, and the, the Psalms. 1 Corinthians 9.9 9 continues to show this very thing. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it an oxen that God is concerned about? Okay, in the New Testament, by the way, where is he getting this from? He's quoting the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, For the scriptures says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He's quoting Deuteronomy. And yet he's calling Deuteronomy the scriptures. The very things that speak about Jesus, Jesus said. Okay? So the law is synonymous with the scripture. James 2.8 if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, again, quoting the Old Testament, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Or transgressors. So again, James uses the law and scripture interchangeably. 2 Timothy 3.14, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them. Timothy learned from his grandma, uh, Lois, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So again, the scriptures which make you wise for salvation. Now, again, he's the New Testament isn't there yet. He's talking about the Tanakh. The Tanakh is able to make you wise for salvation. Okay, <clears throat> through faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the Tanakh talks about Jesus. Verse 16 goes on, though, all scripture, that means the law, the prophets, the Psalms, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So again, not only is he using law and scripture interchangeably, his grandma Eunice was godly, taught him the law and the prophets. As I said, it's able to make you wise for salvation. Both the law and the faith are working together. But how many times are we hearing this from the pulpit today? You know, the Torah isn't just commands of do's and don'ts. Obviously, here he's saying it's instructions in righteousness as well. But we think that the law is just an old thing that he got, you know, changed or got rid of. But he's saying, no, the Torah, the law teaches righteousness. 
And if you study the law today, there's righteousness in it. And it produces conviction, correction. 2 Corinthians 7.10 gives you a good example of that. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Part of the purpose of the law is to lead you to repentance. Repentance leads you to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Because people aren't going to repent without recognizing the sorrow of sin that comes from the law. You see, the devil wants to take the Torah, the law, from the church because he knows this. He knows how important it is. He's a spiritual anesthesiologist. He wants to make your spirit numb to conviction. He wants to make it numb. He, he wants to make it too hard. Oh, I, I don't want to know too much because then I might have to stop doing this and I don't want to stop doing that. Therefore, I'm not going to you know, run after God because I like my life the way it is now. I don't want to have to change. I mean, how many times do we read in Scripture, it is written, it is written, for it is written. In the New Testament, taking us back to the old to teach us righteousness, to teach us, in some cases, correction and rebuke. Let me give you a real-life example of, of this very thing. 2 Kings 22, verse 8. We see Hilkiah, the high priest, in the days of Josiah. They had forgotten the law of God. They hadn't been following the law. They, they kind of were worshiping God the way they wanted to worship him, much like I think we have today. And it says, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law. What happened? He tore his clothes. Okay, it, That was the effect of the law. It brought repentance which ends up leading to salvation. We, we see another example in Nehemiah 8.2. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women. And those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So they read distinctly from the book, in the law of God, and they gave the sense, the meaning of it, and they helped them to understand the reading. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So here in Nehemiah, the captives have returned and notice that they wanted to hear the word of God. They wanted to hear the law. Oh, if we had the hearts for that today in the church. What happened? They wept. They repented. They seeked God, and, and God responded. But again, this is what the enemy wants to keep us from. He wants to destroy the law and make you think it's just legalism. It's just uh, works righteousness. It's impossible to keep, so just forget it all. But that's not the case at all. 
And again, I know people listening are thinking, well, this is legal. You're trying to put us back under the law. No, I'm trying to put you back into the Word of God and to realize that the law is good as long as one uses it properly, as Timothy tells us in Romans as well. Well, <clears throat> a couple other examples here. What did the apostles see in the law? In Acts 24, verse 14, before Felix, Paul is arrested. He's going before Felix here to give his defense. And he says, but this I confess to you that according to the way, that's what the Christians were called at that time, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He doesn't say, believing all things here in, you know, in this new period of history, that Jesus got rid of the law. He says, no, believing all things that were written in the law and the prophets. Before Festus, okay, just a couple of chapters later, he says, therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying, no other things than those which the prophets and Moses, that's the law, said would come. Okay, when the disciples went out and preached, they preached from the law and the prophets. They just showed that that was pointing us to Jesus. Okay, so clearly we can preach Christ from the Old Testament as well today. And it isn't just a historical story and a historical event, but there's spiritual meaning and it's still valid and we still obey. Paul went out of his way to make sure that people <coughs> excuse me, were understanding that he wasn't saying we weren't to obey the law in Acts chapter 21. 1 Corinthians 14.32 says, And the spirits of the prophets are subjects, subject to the prophets. What does that mean? Well, I think it's a warning saying that a man's word, a prophet, is subject to the law and the prophets. In other words, whatever you say or whatever a prophet would say has to be measured by the word of the Old Testament, by the, by the rest of the scriptures. It's kind of like the Deuteronomy uh, 13 challenge. If you want to know if somebody is a false prophet or not, Deuteronomy 13 says if what they say doesn't happen, then it's a false prophet, period. Yet today I see people coming into churches, and what do they do? They say, well, the Lord told me this, and they prophesy these things, and guess what? It never happens. It doesn't happen, or it's absolutely wrong. Well, then the Lord wasn't speaking to you. It's another spirit speaking to you. So many examples. Acts 28, verse 13 here, it says, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law, and of, the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, the Tanakh. And that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 9, 15. By the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. Okay, I... I Two or three witnesses. The law and the prophets. How do you know if somebody's right? Well, it's subject to the law and the prophets. Again, like I said, how many times do we see it is written, it is written. Verse 12 here again, back here in Hebrews. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word isn't just the written word, it's Jesus. 
he is showing you here that the word is indeed Jesus. I want to take you to something here called the Targum. And all the Targum is is a first century Aramaic paraphrase of the scriptures. Okay, and when we look at that, I think it's very valuable. It shows us how the Jewish sages viewed the scriptures. They saw the word of God as being personified. Let me show you Genesis 1 verse 27 here. It says, God created man in his own image. That's what your Bible translation will say. But the Targum says this, same verse, the word of the Lord created man in his likeness. Notice ours says God, but the Targum says the word of the Lord. They're, they're taking God and they're saying the same thing. It's the word of the Lord and God are the same thing. Give you another example, Deuteronomy 1.30, The Lord your God who goes before you, he himself will fight for you. But in the Targum, the word of the Lord your God goes before you. So the word and the Lord are considered the same. This is what the Jewish sages saw in the Old Testament. The word of God is God. Isn't that what the New Testament says? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me show you here, Numbers 10, verse 35. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Well, Yeshua is the word made flesh. He is the word of God. Let me show you now the targum of this very verse. Arise now, word of the Lord. Okay, your version, rise up, O Lord. Here it's saying, word of the Lord. And then it says, Moisha lifted his hands in prayer and said, word of the Lord, turn from the strength of thy anger and return unto us in the goodness of thy mercy. So over and over, we're seeing Lord and word being used interchangeably. That's what the Jewish sages understood the word of God to be. The word was God. There's no difference. Revelation 19.13 says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Targum is exactly in line with our New Testament. It says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Just like Hebrews 4.12 said, a double-edged, two-edged sword. That with it, he should strike the nations. Revelation 1.16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went the sharp two-edged sword. The word is living because it is Jesus. Revelation 2.21 says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of one, each one of you according to your works. Hebrews 4.12 there said that the word of God was a discerner of the thoughts intense of the heart. Here it says that I am he who searches the mind and hearts. 
Just like the Targum says, that word of God is the Lord. It is Jesus. And that's why, guys, it's so important to be able to search these scriptures. Not just to keep you on the right track, but because there's a blessing in it. It does divide between joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It pierces our heart. It convicts us of sin. It, it, it keeps you on the right track. It helps you from being uh, deceived by all these things that are out there in the church and so many other things. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell you here. Enter that rest. And to make sure you do, be in the Word of God. Be in Jesus. Be in the law and the prophets and the Psalms and in the New Testament. But don't throw out the Old Testament and don't throw out the law of God. Because the more you know Him, the more you love Him, and the more you love Him, the more you will obey Him. That's just the bottom line. So with that, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would put your word into our hearts and our minds. You have promised that you would. You said that the law would be put in our hearts. Romans says that the law is in our minds. It is in our hearts. It is a good thing. Lord, help us to love your law. As Psalm 119 says over and over and over again, how pure and good and lovely and needed it is. Father, I pray that as we enter into an unknown time in this world, that we would indeed um, not only seek your word, but that we would trust it. And that we would not just grab onto the things that we want to hear because it sounds good and it's, it's things that we desire, but that we would look at your word and, and remember that just as you told Hilkiah and these other, these other prophets in the days of Jeremiah as well, that there would be disaster and trial and tribulations. And the prophets just ignored that and the people accepted it because they wanted it. That we wouldn't just keep thinking, oh, it's going to be okay because, Lord, we know that we're killing children by the thousands upon thousands and thousands through abortion. We're putting un ungodly things before our eyes in pornography, just causing the sex trafficking and, and children to be raped and, and just unspeakable things done to them as this pornography uh, lust continues to feed that market. And yet, so many in the church are bound by this, and yet we do not repent. We do not stop. Father, you've told us that these things will not go unpunished. Just because we go to church doesn't mean that it's okay or that we're Christians. Let this word convict the churches. Let this word rebuke them. Let this word encourage them and that we would turn to your righteousness, to seek your face, humble ourselves, that we would be healed. And thank you, Jesus, for your love, your forgiveness, and your spirit that empowers us to live a life worthy of the calling. In Jesus' name, amen.